Well, turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 79. Psalm 79 will be our passage this morning. We're going to read the entire psalm, uh, and that will be our meditation today. Beloved saints, this is God's word that he gives to us uh, in the midst of our week, in the midst of our trials, uh, to bring our focus and our attention back onto him. So let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. A psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple, that they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there has no, been no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O oh Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Lest, let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us. O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Uh, please join me in prayer. O Lord, as we come to your word, we are extremely aware that we do not have the faculties of our, on our own to understand your word, to submit to your word, or even to benefit from your word. And so we ask that you would be with us and among us this morning, that you would open your word to us, that you would grant us understanding, and most importantly, that you'd grant us faith in and obedience to this, your most precious word today. We ask this all in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We often hear about the importance of allowing people to uh, save face is the language that gets used. We hear about this, uh, especially in international relations. Uh, two nations are trying to work out an agreement together, and one has clearly has the upper hand, economically, militarily, whatever, or one has made a huge error and is being rescued. But there's always this need to make it look like they are coming as equals, as if uh, there's mutual benefit, as if no one is being rescued, no one is submitting, no one is yielding. And 
reputations are often more important than reality. Appearances more important than the truth. Many would rather suffer the consequences of no agreement than have to admit failure or to appear needy. But it's not just international relationships that have this sort of dynamic. In our personal relationships, we want resolution. And, but we want resolution that avoids humiliation, that avoids surrender. We engage in a sort of dance where we negotiate peace without ever admitting wrong. We would rather lose a relationship than to admit that we have made a mistake. Why? What could possibly keep us from being willing to say, I blew it. Please forgive me. I think we all know the answer. It's pride. Pride, plain and simple. We don't mind showing mercy, but we hate receiving it. We hate needing it. I'm good at offering help. I'm terrible at accepting it. And that's wrong in every possible way. And yet I don't think I'm alone. That I'm the only one. The deacons get offers for help when times are hard, but they seldom ever get requests for help. It's all about saving face. And this doesn't just harm our human relationships. That, that pride leads somewhere. It, it breeds something within us. And it's not good. We struggle to yield and to surrender to God. We, we come to him and we want to broker a deal where it looks like we both have something to offer and we both have something to gain. We try to find a way forward with our God that allows us to save face, a way that avoids humiliation. And yet here's the deal. God has absolutely zero interest in allowing us to save face. It's not that he wants to rub our nose in things, that he wants to humiliate us, but our God is a God of truth. He loves the truth and he's concerned about the truth. And the truth is we've messed up. We have nothing to offer. We are in desperate need. And mercy is our only hope. And mercy only comes to those who admit their need. In Psalm 79, our passage today is a beautiful example of what admitting such need looks like. And more than this, it helps us to see how we learn to admit our need. It also shows us what it looks like to refuse to admit that need. And our passage presents us with two options on how we deal with our sin. Two options on how we deal with our sin. And yet there is only one hope. Only one way to, to salvation, one way to glory. And so today we want to look at those two options and the only way of hope. And my prayer is as we look at the psalm, what we will see is that one of the greatest gifts God ever gives us is something that brings humility. Because humility is the only road to glory. And if humility is the only road to glory, whatever it takes to bring us to humility is a great gift indeed. From our God. Now, God's providence is interesting. Uh, in between sermon series, I often uh, will return to the Psalms for a little while. Uh, Psalms are good. They are uh, the 
God's hymn book for our life. They give us words to express life's deepest emotions, uh, thoughts, and struggles. And last fall, before we started the book of Jeremiah, the last psalm I preached was Psalm 78. I just finished a few weeks ago the book of Jeremiah. And so now I would pick up at Psalm 79. And what do we find? The psalm speaks of the land of Israel, specifically Jerusalem, being occupied by foreigners. The temple has been destroyed and the, the city lays in ruins, verse 1. And that's exactly what we saw happen in the last chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 52. The psalm is being written right at the end of Jeremiah, and it's wrestling with the devastation left by the Babylonian army. You'll remember that most uh, of the citizens of Jerusalem were either killed or taken into exile into Babel. Now, only a few of the poor were left remaining that weren't seen as significant enough to take elsewhere, and they were left to take care of the, the vines and to plow the fields. They were called the plowmen. Those are the remaining Jewish occupants of, uh, of Jerusalem, the, the plowmen. And Psalm 79 is written for them to teach them how to pray. It's a song. It's a prayer for plowmen. It's also for us. It's meant to teach us how to pray when times get hard. And times at this point in Israel's history were hard. Look at how the psalm describes their situation. The, the bodies of the Jews, verses 2 and 3 say, were strewn throughout the streets, throughout the land, left unburied. The birds and the animals are devouring their corpses. And this was meant by the enemy to be an act of humiliation. No proper burial, no dignity, no honor. This is what the enemies would do to demoralize those they conquered. But it's especially bad for the people of Israel. Because God's people believe in the resurrection of the body. They believe, they know that when we die, we are not done with our bodies. And so we plant them in the grave like seeds awaiting the resurrection. But here, God's people have been prevented from burying their dead. And the nations, according to verse 4, laugh at them. God's people are conquered. They're humiliated. So how do you respond when times get hard? Well, there are two options, really. You can either dig in your heels and find fault with everyone else, even God. Or you can figure out what you have done wrong and admit your failure and ask for mercy. And we all know what, what the first response looks like, what it looks like to dig in your heels. Times get hard, things go sideways, a job is lost, a relationship ends, cancer is found, someone lets you down, or a pandemic is declared, or a decision you made is called into question. And the temptation comes to, to admit no wrong. There's this belief that if we admit any wrong, we, we give up all leverage. We lose the right to demand things of others, to demand things from God. And we, we love our leverage. So we admit no wrong. We, we cast blame on anything within arm's reach. We claim to be victims simply waiting for justice. We convince ourselves that we have no need for mercy, only for what is due to us. And we believe 
somehow that this gives us this position of power. This basic posture is the one modeled by Israel's enemies in verses 5 through 7 and 10 through 12. They refuse to call upon the name of the Lord because they are confident in their own strength. They, they've devoured the people of God and they are in it for themselves. There's no fear of God in their eyes. And so they laugh at the Jews, verse 10. They say, where is your God? He can't be that great if he's allowed you to fall into such destruction. Their antagonism is ultimately against the God of Israel. And so they mock him, they deride him. They're filled with pride. They're convinced they have no need. And if they have no need, there's no need to confess. There's no need for mercy. But it's not just the Babylonians and other foreign enemies who are susceptible to such arrogance. It's a temptation we all face every day in one way or another. Isn't that what Israel did throughout Jeremiah's ministry? Isn't that what parents do when they fear admitting error to their children lest they undermine their authority in their mind? Or pastors and elders, so easy to fear admitting failure for the same reasons. Or can just simply be husbands and wives or siblings or friends. We say things like, it's not me, it's you. I don't need to apologize, you do. I'm doing fine, you're the problem. All I want is what's fair. And if I did anything, it's because, because you made me. We all know this response and we know it's not good. So what's the alternative? Well, the other option is to slow down and ask yourself what you've done wrong, what God requires from you, and what he wants you to learn. To use the language of Jesus is to examine and remove the log from your own eye before you work on the speck in your brother's eye. And this option is much harder. And yet it's the option, it's the choice that those in Jerusalem finally took. Look at verses 8 and 9. They confess their sins and they ask God for forgiveness. They, they ask for deliverance. They even use the language of salvation or for atonement, which is to have someone else pay for their sins, verse nine. I love what they say at the end of that verse. They ask God to do all of this for his own namesake. They have no delusions of what they do. They, and, and as they survey the destruction all around them, they're no longer saying, how did this happen? We're so good. How could God let this happen? They're not claiming that God owes them something and has somehow let them down or failed to protect them. Those days are long over. This time of agony has finally led them to accept reality, that they're not innocent, that they aren't self-sufficient, that they have no higher ground or upper, upper hand from which to make demands. They have no tricks left up their sleeve. And it's in the midst of this pain that they finally learn humility. So they surrender. They give up. They stop demanding and they start asking. They stop finding fault with others and they admit their own faults. And they appeal to the only thing that can offer hope. God's name, his honor. But how does this help? God's name reveals who he is 
His name most specially refers to that name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush, uh, Yahweh. But uh, And that name means that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children of the third and the fourth generation. All of God's names reveal who he is, what his character is. His names declare that he remembers the afflicted, that he, he cares for the outcast, that he is opposed to the proud, and that he gives grace to the humble, that he forgives sins when people repent, and that he condemns those who refuse to bow their knees. That's who God says he is. God is bound to act in a consistent manner with what his names reveal, because his honor is at stake, and he is jealous to protect his honor, to protect his reputation. It is his character that binds his actions. And if he's going to do something, it's going to be because his name demands it. And this is what his people have finally come to accept and embrace. They understand that if they are to have any hope of salvation, it will be rooted in the character of God, who he is. Their, their only hope is that God's character will lead to their salvation. So look at their prayer. They don't plead their own cause. They plead God's cause. Verse 1, the nations have come into your land. They have defiled your temple. Verse 2, they have attacked your servants. Verse 6, the nations do not honor your name. Verse 10, they accuse you, O God, of failure. Verse 12, they taunt you. God's people know that they have no ground to ask God to act because they deserve it, but they can ask God to act for his own sake because his name and his reputation demand it. Their hope of salvation and forgiveness is bound up in that same hope. They don't deserve mercy, but, but God has promised it to those who would humbly seek him. They only seek hope in the mercy that is revealed in God's name. Because that name reveals that he would forgive them for his own sake. To say that God acts for his own sake, though, does not mean that he doesn't do it for our benefit. I'm not saying that God is aloof and disinterested. He loves his people. He cares for his people. He watches over them. He acts for their benefit. That's what his name reveals. What I'm saying is that he is motivated by love and not obligation. He's, ob he's motivated by his love for us, not because he's obligated to us. We have no leverage over him. He owes us nothing. He acts freely because of his character, not because we, we have him over some sort of barrel. And that means that even the tragedy he allows to come upon Jerusalem was ultimately motivated by his love. Notice the order of the psalm. Judgment comes first to Israel, not the nations. That's what Peter tells us. Judgment begins with the house of God. God always starts with those he loves first. And this psalm is a perfect example of why. 
the humility that has accomplished in his people's hearts was the goal all along. They have learned to ask for mercy, not demand special treatment. Had God never brought hard times, they would never have learned that lesson. Destruction was not God's goal. Humility was because humility is the only road to glory. I'd like to close by considering three lessons we might learn from this psalm. The first is simply this. Repent quickly. You gain nothing by trying to make it look like you've done no wrong, like everyone else is at fault, but not you. They may very well be at fault as well. I'm not saying they aren't. I'm just saying that God calls you to be more concerned with your own faults than those of others. Accept that and repent. God gives grace to the humble. Let that be your hope. Second, when you receive mercy, remember to come back and give thanks. Look at the last verse, verse 13. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The sad reality is that we are slow to ask for help, to, to give thanks. As slow as we are to ask for help, we're slower to give thanks when that help is received. In Luke 17, uh, Jesus came uh, into a village where he found 10 lepers and they called out and they asked for mercy and Jesus had mercy on them and he, he healed them of their leprosy. And only one, one of those 10 lepers returned to Jesus and gave thanks. And Jesus replied, where, where, he says, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Let us not just learn to ask for mercy, but let us remember to give thanks when we receive it. There's one last lesson, one more lesson in this psalm. And this might not be exactly in the psalm, but an extension of something we see in verse 12. There, God's people pray that God would return their enemy's wrath sevenfold. And this is a common expression of, of God's justice in the Bible. We see that with uh, Cain in Genesis 4. We see it in Leviticus. Um, it's, and this is the idea that, that Lamech uh, abused. Lamech mocked uh, God's justice in Genesis 4 when he said, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamex is 77. There's a temptation to read Psalm 79, verse 12, and think that the only thing God calls us to pray for in regards to others is sevenfold justice. But Jesus took Lamech's lust for wrath and he turned it on its head. When Peter asked if we should forgive seven times, Jesus responded, I do not say seven times but 77 times. In other words, here's Lamech's problem. He doesn't understand things. Sevenfold is for justice. 77-fold is for mercy. 
Jesus then went on to explain that receiving God's mercy should make us show mercy and desire mercy for others. We should pray for God's justice. But don't let that keep you from seeking his mercy for others or from showing his mercy to others. Because this too is part of humility. Psalm 79 is about the road to glory that starts with being brought low. It's the road that God calls us to walk and it's the road he walked when he came to earth and became man. Our catechism sums up Jesus' uh, earthly life and ministry as two stages, humiliation leading to exaltation. Westminster Shorter Catechism 23. Humiliation came first and then glory. The road he calls us to walk is the road he first walked for us. And so Romans says it this way, we are children of God and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. There is only one road to glory and it is the road of the cross. And if that road were to have a street sign, it would be the Lord's Supper, a constant visible reminder of what Jesus endured and what he calls us to. The bread and the wine are pictures of his humiliating death, which he endured for our salvation. They are reminders to us of his call to take up our cross and to endure with him that we might be exalted with him. Were we together this morning, we would be coming to the table of our Lord together to remember who we are as God's people and what our only hope is. But even though we are apart and can't come to the table together, the reality proclaimed in the Lord's Supper is no less true. This message is always true, that one of the greatest gifts that God ever gives you is something that will bring humility. Because humility is the only road to glory. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you do not always give us what we want, but you always give us what we need. There is one road to glory, one road of hope. And were it up to us, we would walk any road but that road. And so we thank you for the gifts of trials that bring humility, we, that teach us to recognize our need, that teach us to ask for help. And so we ask that you would put to death our pride, that you would teach us to cling to you, to not blame you for our mistakes, but to take responsibility for what we have done and to confess, to repent, to ask for mercy. And after we have suffered a little while, would you, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ, will you re restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us to you, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.